Okay, here we go, here we go. So I know some of you want the money in the basket to go for the Kirby Lorenz presidential campaign, but, uh, <laughs> but no, uh, it's gonna go to the Russians for summer camps, okay? So the Russians, about this time, they're gonna write me a letter like it's no big deal. They're gonna send an email and say, you know, if you had $26,000 lying around, we could have a really great summer camp. So I always, you know, we always, we've been sending them $10,000 a year for, for a while, which is so interesting. One of the interesting things about going to Russia is it doesn't matter how weak the economy becomes, everything just gets more expensive in terms of dollars. I can't quite figure out. It's graphed on such a huge scale that you just can't figure out how it works. So um, I think I told you when I went there the first time, I was, there was the official ruble rate and the on-the-street ruble rate. And they're like, you stay here because we're going to go change money on the street. I'm like, you're changing money on the street? You're pastors. I'm like, there's like, so they go and change the money. I said, you know, how do you square? They said, here's the thing you have to understand. Under our laws, the government taxes us at 108% of our income. So they said, so everyone is a criminal subject to arrest at any time. I mean, isn't that kind of interesting? You have so many taxes that everybody, everybody is, by definition, a tax dodger. So they're sort of like, you know, there's, the game is just a little different here. I was like, well, you know, the game is just a little different. I mean, it's, it's a difficult thing to always be subject to arrest. So if you had an entire nation of people who are always subject to arrest, it's very, it makes you, makes you think uh, and live in a, in a different sort of way, right? All right, so it is the fourth Sunday of Lent, which is like the third Sunday of Advent. You know, those are the heavier seasons of the church, but the church understands that that can get you down. And so they always... Uh, lift things a bit, and you signal that with just a lighter color, you know. If you just get a little bit of pigment in with the purple, it'll, it'll turn rose color. So uh, it's all good. So we're four Sundays in. We've got a lot going on over the next couple of weeks. Remember on Wednesday nights, come. Dinner's been great, and if you want to go to confession, you can. And, you know, there's a lot of other things going on. I still have a couple of spots to Germany if you want to go. Um, we're out of the first bus. We're going toward a bigger bus, so it's not like there's a full boat, but we might do a little. So if, you, if you're last minute, if you're lonesome for, you know, a German pilsner and um, some company, call me, all right? Uh, so four Sundays, here we go. Heavenly Father, who sent your only Son to sinful human beings and laid on him the grievous burden of the cross so that we would see and know the glory of your holy love, grant us faith in him, and don't let it be shaken by any adversity or daunted by any threats from the demonic. But let us ever follow him steadfastly all the way to the cross and through the cross to the perfect fellowship of the resurrection with you. Through the same Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Okay. Uh, questions about anything? Let's see. So the money goes to Russia. Anything else going on? Yes, friend. I kind of actually like this way, you know. <laughs> Always attack from the sun, Bruce. First rule of military practice. <clears throat> Let's see here. I don't know if I can. I didn't know you were attacking. Ah, see? Second rule of military practice. Never let them know that it's an attack. How's that? Is that better? That's not perfect, but it's okay. All right, good. All right. Anything else? We can do that. Yes, friend. I'm not on Facebook except insofar as I creep to see what all the rest of you are doing. I see that as my <laughs> spiritual duty. Uh, 
Here's the problem, though, not being on. I, the world has left me behind, right? Almost everything I try to look up or go online, they're always like, do you want to log in through Facebook? I'm like, I actually don't, because <laughs> I told you, I've got one of those, you saw that Gene Hackman film, what was the name of it? I can never remember. That's the name of the cage. My daughter doesn't know what the name of the cage. Any engineer knows the name of the cage. The cage, Gene Hackman in there, and he's like living in that warehouse inside that cage where nothing, enemy of the state. Yeah, so I'm going to live in a cave inside that cage and you won't be able to find me. All you people, you all have chips in your brains already. You just don't know it. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I did not have anything to do with that, although I can sing you the theme song because that was established early in our dating life. When it's 3 in the morning and you're in bed, Kirby Lorenz will be counting your bread. What's the next line? Where is... What? Hey, everybody's got secrets, okay? <laughs> everybody's got secrets. It's all, it's all good, though. All right, so I hope you didn't hurt the vicar last week. Um, I got some more jokes to start with. No, I don't really. <laughs> it's all good. All right, so just think about where we've been. I know this seems like a bit of a whirl, but, I, and I've been trying to think about how in the end we'll finish this up. Maybe we'll have a quick read through from start to finish after you have the main points, but where I started, at least, was that it's better for you to be in church. It's just better. And the Hebrews, I mean, again and again, he says, it's better for you. It's better for, it's better for you to do that. You know, why is it better for you to be here than somewhere else? Well, you know, church is where Christ lives. Church is the bridge between heaven and earth. Christ gives you access to his heavenly Father in church in a way that doesn't happen anywhere else. I mean, I just, you know, there's a reason that when the pastor elevates the chalice, you know, when we, you know, long ago, far away, when we were standing on the altar, before it was an altar because it wasn't consecrated, trying to figure out you know, how, how far down the icon should come, you know, what we used was a measure was how far up the chalice would come in the elevation. And what you're supposed to see is this continuation from, you know, from the altar you know, through the pastor's hands to the chalice, to the blood of Christ, which is the same blood that's on the, you know, the same blood that drips from the cross and belongs to Jesus. He's in heaven now, right? You're supposed to make all these connections, that you're in a place where Jesus is the bridge as the permanent high priest forever. Well, this is where Jesus lives, and Jesus invites you here every week. And if you begin to think of it in that way, that Jesus loves you and Jesus invites you in, as opposed to, I have to go to church, your whole life will change. So, uh, you know, Jesus comes to us, and Jesus speaks to us, and Jesus fills us, and we get better and better. I mean, that's the point. And in, in many ways, I've, I was struck by, in some ways, I'd read this book probably too superficially in the past, because there's a regular admonition where Paul says to the Hebrews, you really got to shape up, right? You know better than this. But if you start to actually read the book, it's so thick. You know, what they know is really quite amazing, all these connections that they're able to make from Melchizedek to Jesus to knowing the story of the Red Sea to what we're going to do today, which is he just sort of lists people like these are all in your consciousness. You should just remember about Barak and Gideon and Samson, and, right? Well, I mean, that's a, that's, a remarkable, that's a remarkable bit of history that you've got in your head. So it's good for you to come to church not only to learn that stuff, but to rejoice in it. And then to remember that you're part of the family, and then more than that, you're able to see beyond this family to the next family. I was struck today a couple of times we had in the service where we talked about, I think one of the hymns too, where we talked about um, 
rejoicing with all the saints or praying with all the, all, the, all the people. Well, you know, it's not just the people that you see at St. John. It's not just the people who are still on earth. I mean, at the very first part of the creed, you confess what is visible and invisible. I believe everything, visible and invisible. Part of what that means is you confess not just angels and demons, which is usually the, the first way that we think about that. It means that you actually confess that your saintly father, mother, brother, sister, grandfather, great-grandfather, Luther, Melanchthon, you know, St. Augustine and Aquinas and all the rest, the great doctors of the church, the great female doctors of the church, right? They've all gone before you and they're all celebrating the Eucharist with you and someday you get to see that. He's trying to encourage you by letting you see that because it relativizes all the troubling things that you have to go through. At the bottom of all that is that you're different, right? You're just a different sort of human being. And you're going to judge differently. I, what, is, what is happening in the world and in America is so fascinating to me because the shift is on. And I'm not, I really want to talk to a couple of people who I think are a lot smarter than me about this. The shift is on, and I have this suspicion that it might be for the better. I don't know that it's going to be. It's going to be for the better in some ways. It's certainly going to be worse in other ways. The way the Christians are being leaned on is... Um, you know, people are getting squashed in many venues. So it's going to be very interesting how it goes forward because, you know, it's not just enough to live and let live. What's happening is that you're being forced to agree. Remember, I was thinking of those um, 40 martyrs the other day when it was snowy. Uh, remember those 40 martyrs? Sagaste is maybe the name. Remember, it was, it was right about as things were flipping around with Constantine and there were these 40 soldiers who were... Uh, part of a regiment in Turkey and they had a difficult commander who demanded that everybody make the pagan sacrifices. So it wasn't enough that they would just let other people make their sacrifices, kind of live and let live. No, they had to make their pagan sacrifices. And you remember how this was, these 40 guys said, you know, hey, we're Christians. And you know, they stripped them naked and put them out in the middle of an, in the snow and the ice on, on a frozen lake. And then they built fires, as the Romans were meant to do, and made warm baths. And then they sort of mocked them and said, you know, if you'll only, you know, if you'll only, if you'll only renounce Jesus, come be warm with us. And they froze to death on the lake. You know, there's a famous icon, the 40 martyrs. I mean, that kind of stuff is not unknown kind of in the history of the world. In some ways, we've lived in this very interesting time where we've had a great uh, freedom and sometimes dominance that we haven't always handled well and maybe haven't always paid attention to. And I'm not really... You know, I'm not predictive in the sense of how people or nations get judged or how things work out. I mean, I have a friend who says, you know, 50 million abortions, that's a reason enough to take any country down. You know what? And that's, you know, on the strength of that alone, he says, America should be, should be plowed under. So, I mean, in some sense, you know, um, God is, in, is patient but not forever. So I, I can't really read always what's happening, uh, or I can't really, really read cause and effect but in terms of what's happening, it's a very interesting time in America because it's not enough that you, it's not enough that you live and let live. What's, what's happening is that you be forced to agree. And that will call for, cause for some stark choices. And that's exactly what's happening in Hebrews. So pick up a Bible. I mean, we'll start just a little bit before. I did give you a little bit about chapter 11, but it has to come out at the end of chapter 10. That's the only way you can sort it out, okay? So... The end of chapter 10, we did just a little bit of this, but just to kind of refresh you on where that was. So go to 26, okay? 
Um, we'll just sort of see what happens. Uh, no, I'm sorry, go forward. Go forward to 32, so 10.32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened. Now, that's code for when you were baptized. So remember, to be baptized was to be illumined, to be enlightened. We still say that in the catechism today. Even as he's called, gathered, enlightened, and sanctified. Right? That's the, that's the catechism talking about your baptism. Talking about the creed, but that's what, where it happens. It happens at your baptism. In the former days, when you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Um, the, kind, you know, the kind of it is now when people convert and their families don't understand it, or even if people who convert from another religion and are often persecuted or abandoned for it. That's the kind of thing that people were going through. So, you recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and affliction. So, you know what? I mean, this is the... It's always so interesting for me to visit universities and try to get the tenor on how people think about Christians. Um, We'll talk about that in a little bit more, but it's always just so interesting. I think it's good to to be exposed to it because it sharpens you up, but it's it's a dangerous occupation. You know, being a Christian on most um, kind of non-religious, I mean, even, um, I mean, well, even on some religious campuses, it's it's a very difficult thing. Uh, I probably don't want to go into that, but there's just, there's been a lot of, of, of places, a lot of theological faculties or religious schools that are saying we've lost it, right? We can't hold on to it anymore. It's very difficult. So, um, you know, that'll be, I don't want to, uh, yeah, well, I only want to work with first-hand information. Anyway, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So you and your friends, it's difficult. And, you know, when you're hurt, it's difficult, or when your friends are hurt as well. For you had compassion on the prisoners, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. See, now you, you see two things there. One is... And this really needs to continue with Christians, that Christians are the empathetic ones. I know that some of you thought I was out of my mind last year when we talked about this. But, I mean, here it is in the text. Come what may, the Christians are the ones who love. Come what may, the Christians are the ones who are empathetic. Come what may, the Christians are the ones who visit prisoners. Right? That's what Christians do. And it's going to sharpen up in terms of... Um, you know, whether you can do that even when the press is on. So you were the ones who, on the positive side, you were kind to other people, you were loving, you refused to have enemies. And on the other side, because of that, you were nevertheless plundered. You could make those own connections now, where you were indulgent toward people and they just wouldn't stop. You know, it wasn't enough to be indulgent. It was that they had to make you be like them. Okay? And so that even happens when people get plundered. Now, I did this just off the cuff. I did this sort of, you joyfully accepted this. You remember then that this is going to be tied on the other end, like bookends, to, to Hebrews 12.1, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, suffering is shame. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. It's the um, gradual for, for Lent. Come, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. So it's the joy on the far side of the cross, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, right? So it's the same way. In some ways, it's been too easy to be a Christian for the last few hundred years. 
right? Especially in America, in some ways it's too easy. And what you find is the church takes things for granted. It's hard to know, you know, it's hard to know if we were, how we would act if we were under the same sort of oppression that these people were, the people before us, what, the people in the first 300 years of the church, for example. It's just difficult to know what we're made of and, and how much we really hold on and what we'll concede to until you're actually in the face of it. So, you know, I only say that just on reflection about myself as much as about you. You know, could we, can we stand this kind of scrutiny where, you know, things happen to us, real things. You know, you're plundered. And you say, well, um, see, it's all very easy. It's just a choice between Jesus or that. Here's your choice. It's a binary choice. You choose Jesus or you choose that. Choose Jesus or choose that. And for sometimes it came, you choose Jesus or your stuff. You choose Jesus or death. You choose Jesus or, right, your family. And we're going to read stories about that in just a second. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult proposition that most of us haven't faced. It's probably a good reason that we need to sort of ramp up the rhythm of our lives so that, I mean, the stuff that we moan about that's hard for us, right? It's hard for us to tithe. It's hard for us to give alms. It's hard for us to come to church, really. You know what's hard? Being skinned alive. That's hard. Right? It's hard being thrown to the lions. It's hard watching your children being killed in front of you. That's one of the references here later when we get to where it says they saw their loved ones die. It's a story from Maccabees, Eliezer the priest, who, and also a woman with um, seven sons, I think, uh, where the officials tried to force them to eat pork. And they, you can read it in Second Maccabees, um, where they say, they just say, eat this and you go free. You don't eat it. They didn't eat it. And what happened is they were tortured and then killed one by one. Right? I mean, this is a thing we can't even, we can't sort of, we can't sort of understand this kind of common, common practice. So, uh, you know, you have to keep the rhythm of life now so that you're ready to go when things get a little bit more difficult. And you know what? If they don't get more difficult, then God bless you. But, um, you know, the tenor is toward division and hate and tribalism and uh, you know, self-preservation, which is all of that you see is, of course, anti-Christian. Right? To be Christian is to absorb everybody into the community without regard. And it's baptism, the illumination, that makes us brothers and sisters, right? And that's how the lines need to be drawn, as opposed to my people, based on pick something, culture, language, race, color of skin, pick something, Right? And that's how Christianity can inform the conversation, hopefully before it gets too, too far down the road. Anger is very difficult to stop once you get it started. Anger is a political strategy in America, and this is on all sides. The problem with anger is it's easy to start. It's very hard to stop. It's very hard to stop. People have to exhaust themselves. The Thirty Years' War, you know, Northern Ireland, the Middle East, pick something. People have to exhaust themselves before they'll finally say, I'll have peace. Once you start... It is a difficult stuff, so you all need to be uh, the voice of reason and peace, even if it makes you suffer. You had compassion. You were reasonable. You loved your enemies. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, right? Since you knew that you yourselves, and here's the thing, there it is again, had a better possession. In some sense, the word better relativizes your entire life. It's seven or eight times in here, but every time... He wants to prompt you on to faithfulness, he says, because it's something better. And this is, the, you know, this is one of the things about the Christian life. Look at that. Like, I'm like, look at me. I mean, it's like, 
Okay, geez, I just turned into a pastor there for a second. Uh, this is one of the things about the Christian life, right? That it's never, it can't ever be at the bare minimum. And Jesus never does anything halfway. He never does anything halfway. I mean, some, I just always have this passage from sometimes a great notion in my head where this guy gets in a fight with another guy and he just beats him. He drops him with the first punch, then he beats him to a pulp and his girlfriend says to him, you know, why'd you have to beat him so badly? He says, hey, never do anything halfway. You're like, I mean, it's a radical example, but for Jesus too, never anything halfway. Somebody takes your coat, give them your coat too, right? This is, uh, it proved to be difficult for the Hebrews who actually listened and did. And it's so interesting because at the same time they're doing it and they're clearly suffering, um, whoever the writer is, has this whole sermon to try to get more out of them, right? So it's not enough. If this happened to us, if one of you got plundered because you're a Christian, if you lost a job, if you had everything taken away, you know, if you were the person who you know, got sued and it was all removed from you, you lost it, you know, what would we do? We would think, you know, well, this is, we, you know, we would come to that and think, you know, but this is commonplace for these people. So it's just, it's just it's a different time. Hopefully we won't go back to this, but one never knows. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has such a great reward. And that's where we're going to go. Your confidence has a great reward. And the whole of chapter 11 is about that confidence, okay? Don't throw it away. For you have need of endurance so that you will do the will of God and receive what is promised. Here's the thing. Endurance is just one foot in front of the other. Boom, 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 boom. This is Christians. This is what we do. What do we do? We go to the Eucharist. What do we do? We say our prayers. What do we do? We read the scriptures. What do we do? We're merciful. What do we do? We don't have enemies. What do we do? We give a good witness. That's what you do. That's endurance. One thing after another. And sometimes divinely inspired, as you'll see in just a second. Okay? You still okay? So now I'm going to shoot you over to, uh, well, for yet, uh, for yet a little while, and the coming one shall come, and shall not tarry, so the promise that Jesus will come again. But my righteous one shall live by faith. Right? We have to talk about what faith is. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So, and I really would like, I'd love for you if you think more about this. That your faithful life pleases God. That when you're kind, when you're merciful, when you're generous, when you go to the Eucharist, when you say your prayers, when you come to church, here's the thing. It is, there are a range of things that happen to you, but to the list of things that happen to you, you should know that God is pleased by that. We don't do a very good job as Lutherans with that because every time so, somebody talks that way, you know, there's this great <clears throat> nervousness that justification has been endangered. It's just not true. Here's the thing. Christ does everything. Now we're in a new life. And if you follow behind Christ, he's just really happy. When Jesus says, follow me, and you follow, he's just, God, Jesus is just really happy. God's pleased with you. And we should do better. If you, if you can't do it for yourself, maybe you could pick somebody else out in the room. And you could say, the way you act is really pleasing to God. We are all too happy to say to each other, the way you act is really out of bounds, right? And that's much more common in the church. But maybe we could get in the habit of saying, you know, the way that you act, the way that you comport yourself, the way that you care for kids, the way that you approach visitors, the way that you teach Sunday school, the way that you do merciful things, the way that you help with disasters, 
the way that you are generous, the way that you run Christmas sharing, the way, the way, the way, the way, if we could do a better job of saying to people, I mean, go downstairs and look. The congregation has given almost $100,000 away to other people this year, so far just in the first seven months. Watch it on the screen. It's fun to watch it go by. Right? But we, of course, could do more. It'd be great if we did much more than that. But God is pleased with that. Right? It doesn't mean I'm earning my salvation. It just means that God's pleased. And He's pleased with you too. And we should say that more often in a, in a very happy way. It's, it's, a, it's encouraging. It's like parenting. If you always tell your kids only what they do wrong, you know, they grow to hate you. They actually don't call you on your birthday. They just have no interest in you. It's just it's too hard, right? But if you're the one, prodigal son today, if you're the one who will always, the first word out of your mouth is love, right? What happens? Then your children return to you. Then people come back. Right? It's a genius little, little text. It's the center of scripture of that text. It's really remarkable. 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. So those two things go together, and you probably should always remain it. You know, that, that last guy on the beach having his head cut off, their God is my God. You know, you're going to die one way or the other, right? So you might as well die nobly. You might as well die in the faith. So this is, this is something that has been, has been lost maybe over the years for us, but maybe needs to be reclaimed. You know, there, there were wonderful things in the canon of, I mean, I get about university education and different cultures and elevating other things, and this is as good as that. But there were things in the canon of the Western world, and when we say the Western world, we sort of include, you know, um, Jerusalem and um, Constantinople and Rome and Athens. Things in the canon of the Western world, there were noble things that were held up. It doesn't mean they weren't held up in other cultures, but those were the basis for our culture, many of those things, and they were, they were noble things. You know, courage, um, generosity, mercy. Those things, are, those things are worthwhile, and the more so when they're done by the church in the name of Jesus. The other things are just sort of dim imitations, but when done in the name of Jesus, they're remarkable, remarkable things. Yeah, it's 10.30, and I'm going to get to my outline now, okay? So here we go. <laughs> well, look, it's right there, the first line. So much to do, so little time, right? And this is, the, this is the problem with becoming mature. You can't force it, right? My, one of my, my favorite Zen stories, I've told you, you know, the guy plants rice all day, goes home to cook dinner, his father comes in late with a basket filled with all the seedlings that the, younger, that the son had planted all day. So the son plants all day and goes home. The father comes home late. He's uprooted all the seedlings and put them back, in a, and he brings them home in a basket. And the son said, why'd you, why'd you, why'd you pull up all the seedlings? He said, I wanted them to grow faster. Right? So maturity takes time. You can't rush it. It takes other things, too. It takes suffering. It takes mercy. It takes a range of things. Um, some people get it earlier. Some people get it later. Here's the guarantee. You'll never get it if you don't simmer. And that's what's happening, that's what's happening here. He's basically saying... This is the way to Christian maturity. Why don't you grow up? Let's move from milk to meat. I've been working with you a long time. You should know better by now. You should pay attention. Here we go. Look at the people before you. That's what they've done. You should imitate them. Here we go. You know, it just comes by. But it's not like you can go home and do it all today before 2 o'clock. It's the repetitive rhythm. It's the daily, you know, embrace. It's prayers in the morning and prayers at night. You know, here's the thing. You know, why don't you miss church? I mean, why shouldn't you miss church? It's bad for you to miss church. 
Every prayer that you don't say, every Eucharist that you miss, right? Every liturgy that's not engaged, you're a poor person for it. It was a chance to do something. Yes, all things in moderation. Yes, scrupulosity is a sin. If you pray all day and you never feed and feed the poor, you're sinning with your prayers. Yes, it can go the wrong way. That's normally not our problem. So this is why you try to establish a regular rhythm to your life. Prayer and scripture, the liturgy, right? The Eucharist, tithing and alms, mercy and witness, day after day, you look for opportunities, you just keep going, you do it even when you don't want to do it. Because if you don't do it, yeah, it's not a question of whether you're going to hell or not. You know, that gets established at your baptism relatively early, unless you just like kick like crazy. The Lord fishes with a barbed hook. The question is not always about hell. The question is very much about what does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, right? What does it mean to take Hebrews seriously? What does it mean to be in the church where people who went before us used to get killed over these things? Right, and we're usually mildly inconvenienced. Usually for us, when we don't get something done, it's that we have we might have missed a luxury in some ways, right? So what do you do? You put yourself into this rhythm where you just keep going, you just keep going, you let the Lord take care of the balance, you just keep going. And then what you discover is when trouble comes, then you're ready to go. That's what they're talking about here. So um, it is interesting, I think, i just point up one more thing and then we'll go here. It is interesting, I think, that at the beginning and end of this chapter about faith, which is going to be a long list of people, artfully arranged, a long list of people who have done wonderful, amazing things in the church. It's interesting that at the beginning, in 11 verse 3, and I think at the end in 39 or 40, his first thing is about we. Isn't it interesting that in the list, he puts your name in here to start. Look at this. Verse 3, by faith we understand. Hey, you know what? It wasn't about us. It was about everybody else up to now, and suddenly it's about us. And in the same, um, you know, at 1140, when he ends the chapter, since God had foreseen something better for us. So this whole, it's, it's as if, it's as if everybody who came before in the church went before for you. And someday you're going to catch up with them. And you know what? They don't even get their reward until you get there. That's verse 40. It's so weird. We always think about people going to heaven and enjoying the full reward and everything gets fulfilled. And frankly, I don't know how this works out in time, but from the text, verse 40 says they're all waiting for you. And they don't get the payoff until you get there. So it would be very nice for you to get there. It would be the Christian thing to do, right? Because, I mean, that's what it is. Verse 40, it says, since God has foreseen something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Heaven is a poorer place until you get there. And someday when we all get home, it'll be a remarkable thing. There'll be some pop of having you know, everybody in and nobody out. It'll be a remarkable thing. It's just so interesting. There are so many things in this text that I cannot explain to you. Um, a couple of you have asked me about very hard passages. I'm just going to tell you some stuff. You know, there's stuff we don't know. There's stuff we don't know in the church. There's stuff I don't know as a pastor. There's stuff you don't know as an adult or as a parent or as somebody who's been in the church a long time. There's just stuff you don't know. Sometimes you just have to say it. I don't know what it's going to look like. All I know is that it doesn't get buttoned up until you get there. It is weird to say that for Abraham, things don't get buttoned up until you get there. That is the strangest thing, right? For Moses, for Cain, Abel, right? David. 
How does that work? I don't know how it works. Apparently, they're waiting for you. Apparently, you're tremendously valuable. And apparently, they're hoping that you'll continue on your walk, that you'll simmer, that you'll mature. So when you get there, 1 Corinthians 2, 3, you'll bring a lot of stuff with you and you won't come naked. Right? Everybody passes through the fire. Everybody's purified. What's horrible gets burned away. What's good, all your good works go with you. And you make heaven a brighter place by the good you've done. This, of course, is why we honor saints and angels. Right? Because you just say, how did you ever do that? That's remarkable. Okay, so... Yeah, so often, almost, to, almost every time I've ever heard this taught... This is always taught in the sense of you should have more faith. And maybe everything I've said the last 30 minutes, maybe that's what I've said too, but um, it's what I'm not saying first, if I'm saying it at all. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You all know that. And the obvious point that's always made is you should have some more faith. You should believe harder. You should have some more assurance. Here's the thing. All of that belongs to God before it belongs to you. Okay? It all belongs to God before it belongs to you. So I'm right at the bottom of the first page where it says, in some sense, chapter 11 explains God's promise. Right? In some sense, faith is another name for what God is doing. And God is doing it before you're doing it. There is this objective content to the faith. There are these objective actions of God. What God does, for example, what we rehearse in the creed, all the things that God does, in some sense, the church has always said, that's the faith. And it's really interesting that the word can be used uh, in a couple of different ways. So uh, I'm turning the page. The point is, what God did in the past for others, he's going to do in the present and the future for us. However bad it gets, you know, if you have to hold on to one thing, hold on to Christ. Whatever happens in your life, and frankly, you know, the world doesn't have to go to hell or the, you know, the United States doesn't need to come tumbling down. You're going to have your own share of pain, you know, with your kids, with your marriage, with your relatives, when you go to the hospital, when people die, everybody dies, you know, you're going to... You're going to get pain one way or another. It's waiting there and it's going to come to get you. The clouds are gathering and there will be trouble. Right? It may not be spectacular trouble. You may not freeze to death naked on a lake. But, you know, at some point you're going to die and people around you are going to die. And you need to know how to live when people die. Right? That's what this is about. What the Lord did in the past for others, he does in the present and the future. So, you know, here we go. Um, there are four bits to this chapter. There's an introduction. There's a list of folks with whom God is very, very pleased. God says, man, I love these people. These people are fantastic. He says that about you, too. You need to believe that, you know, that he thinks you're wonderful. There's a list of folks who suffer for the faith. And yet, and of course, this is what we always think. We always think when we suffer, all is lost. But of course, then there's this very artful list of people who suffer, and God still does amazing things through them. So basically, you have a list of winners and a list of losers, right? But God works through the winners and he works through the losers. God makes the winners and he strengthens the losers. It's very interesting. 
which then goes back to my long transfiguration spiel about how you can't see your life in real time. You have no idea what God is doing in your life. Right? See, part of the reason you can't be so directive about everything you're doing is that you have no idea what's happening. I could give you an example from this I give you an example from this congregation this week where something blew up bigger than you could. I mean, it was like an atom bomb went up. And then all of a sudden, it all settled down in about 48 hours, and it was better. You're like, whoa, how did that happen, right? It's remarkable. You should talk among yourselves. You should look at your own troubles. You should look at the things that go wrong in your life. You should ask yourself. See, our normal reaction is when things go horrible for us, we say, you know what, the Lord doesn't love me anymore. Things are going to, nothing's going to work out. My life is ruined. Sometimes the Lord is just clear of the decks. What happens on transfiguration? Jesus comes and shows them everything. And then they say, we should stay here. And Jesus is like, no, we're going down the mountain. And as soon as they get to the bottom of the mountain, what happens? There's a man with a kid who foams at the mouth and has a demon. And even as they bring the kid toward Jesus, proximity, right? We talked about this. You get closer to Jesus, closer to Jesus. They bring him, the kid convulses and foams at the mouth. The closer they bring him to Jesus, the worse it gets. And then by the time that he gets close to Jesus, you should be thinking altar and Eucharist. You should be thinking it's better in church. As soon as that happens, what happens to the kid? The demon comes out, the kid's restored, and the father gets his son back. If they'd have stayed on the mountain, that never would have happened. It would have been better for them to stay on the mountain. They can't see their life in real time. All they know is that they got to go to Jerusalem during Lent. Right? It's your life too. It's the same way. Your life is exactly the same way. So, and I just want to, I really do want you at least to think about this. Try reading it in a different way. I've written it out for you on the second page. So I, I played around with the Greek a little bit. One of the fun things about it not being the first language, or maybe, maybe this is the thing, you always have to, if I, if I say particular words to you, they have a context in your first language. They have double meanings, you know. Uh, the, the words can mean different things. They're nuanced in different ways. Sometimes words overlap. It's the same in Greek, okay? So try this. Faith which is how we translate pistis, which is the Greek word, faith or belief or trust, but it can also mean a guarantee. Now you have to ask yourself, who does the verbs here? So faith is the assurance of things hoped for, right? Or God's guarantee is the pedestal of everything you're hoping for. That's another way to read this text. Just, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing with the, with the text that's written. Some guy is sitting in a room and he's got to turn out a Bible for crossways and he's got to, at the end of the day, pick a word, right? He's got to pick a word because on Sunday we've got to read something. Church is coming, let's go. We've got to sell this thing. But the reality is this could mean different. So it can mean something like faith or belief or trust or this guarantee is the basis. Now, faith is the assurance. There's hardly a weaker word in America than assurance, especially if you own, say, high-yield bonds. So the thing is, there's hardly a, you know, there's hardly, there's hardly a worse word for us because assurance is such a malleable word. How about these other words? This can mean faith is the reality of things hoped for. It can also, it, this, is, this, this next word can also mean, um, it can also mean a pedestal, something sits on it. Like you buy your wife flowers and you put it on a pedestal, or you, or you put a watchtower on the on the wall of a uh, 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 that surrounds a city and protects it. That's another way to talk about this. So faith is the basis, the hypostasis, the substance, the stuff, the pedestal. It's this basis. So. 
faith is the basis or reality of things that you hope for. Faith is the, and now he's going to lean toward evidence or guarantee. Remember, this is a sermon. He's going to say to you, hey, what God did for them, he's going to do for you. He did it in the past, he's going to do it for you. This story is your story. This is Easter Vigil. Remember, that's how this started. It's a sermon. It's rhetoric. It's like he's going to stir your imagination. This is like a stump speech, right? This is it. You're part of it. Here we go. You're part of the family. Jesus was good to them. He's good to you. We're all in it together, boys and girls. Here we go. That's what this means. Faith is the conviction or the evidence or the guarantee or the proof, right, of things you don't see. Because of this kind of faith, this is really interesting. The people of old, how does it get translated here? Received divine approval. Hey, God was pleased with them. You know what? Because of faith, God's action, their action, you know, this guarantee, this pedestal, everything that's going on, because of faith, God was pleased with them. Man, if you don't get anything else today, go home and rejoice that God is pleased with you. Not because you're perfect, because you're forgiven. <clears throat> It's a good work when it's a forgiven work. It's not a good work till it's a forgiven work. You should go home and say to yourself, to your family, God's really pleased with us. Why? Because God forgave us at the Eucharist. And God honors his own action. It's, it's just a wonderful way to think about this. Because of this kind of faith, the people of the Old Testament, the people of old, were attested, were commended, were approved, were made reliable witnesses, Right? That's all we're going to do, but um, if you think about it in that way, then you read the rest. And if you want, you know, if you want a little homework, you can go read about these other people. You can, you can figure out who's what. You know, Eleazar is the guy who gets tortured to death. Isaiah, the legend of Isaiah, says that he was sawn in two. Um, you know, not completely clear, but... Anyway, so we'll come back and do some more on this. But this is, this is a gorgeous, gorgeous thing for you to read as a, as a congregation and to kind of prompt you in the faith. All right. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, thanks. Try to remember that God loves you and is pleased with you. Just work with that this week. See how it changes you, okay? Cheers. Love you.